When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Slate's Political Gab Fest, the welcome to the kleptocracy edition for December 1st, 2016. I'm Emily Bazelon. John and David are off somewhere. I'm not sure where, although I did have a great time doing a live show with them last night that listeners, you will hear just before New Year's so that we can take a break for the holiday. And today I am joined by, at the moment, three people. Ruth Marcus, who is a columnist and deputy editorial page editor for The Washington Post. Hey, Ruth. Hi there. And Adam Davidson, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker. Hey, Emily. Hey. And Jacob Weisberg, who is the chairman of the Slate Group and the host of Trumpcast, the show that is going on for at least four years. Uh, don't remind me. <laughs> but very much worth listening to. So we're going to talk about three topics. Adam is going to join us for the first topic. We're harnessing his finance and economics expertise, and then we're going to let him go because he has a busy day. And on this week's show, we will start by talking about Trump's business entanglements and conflicts of interest. They abound. What does that mean about how to think about this presidency? Then we're going to talk about Trump's recent cabinet appointments, in particular his selection of Tom Price to head the Department of Health and Human Services and what that means for repealing and replacing Obamacare. And then we're going to talk about what I've come to think of as Trump's Twitter spasms, his way of communicating with the public, sometimes full of falsehoods and really seeming like propaganda, sometimes purely self-promotional, not the way in which we're accustomed to get communications from our elected leaders. And for Slate Plus, we're going to talk about a great question we got from listener Michael O'Shea about our reading habits. Okay, so Adam, conflicts of interest are flying around this president-elect. A few of the countries to be named Turkey, Argentina, India, Japan, the Philippines, Ireland, Scotland. This is a, a businessman with property interests and developments all over the world, increasingly selling his name and his brand to projects that he's not necessarily having ownership of, but has an interest in their success. And to just give one of the examples that has struck me, in Turkey, there are these Trump towers in Istanbul. And after Trump called for a ban on Muslims entering the United States, the president of Turkey said that Trump's name should be taken off 
off of these towers. This was insulting to Turkey. Then later in the campaign, Trump said that the president of Turkey um, had the right to crack down harshly on dissidents. And all of a sudden, these calls for taking his name off, this threat to his brand in Turkey, went away. Trump has recently this week talked about soon enough he'll hold a press conference he'll talk about how he's not going to be involved in their day-to-day operations but he said nothing about giving up their ownership so how reassuring do you think this is well i I think you can assume it's very unreassuring but let me i think what's helpful is to understand how trump's business has evolved in the last decade or so because it really highlights what a unique set of challenges he represents as opposed to some other business person with um, links all over the world. So one thing to know about Trump's business is it's not Boeing. This is not General Electric or McDonald's, you know, a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar company with huge assets all over the world. It's a fairly light company. You know, he has 14 hotels. He has, you know, depending on the count and what's opened, you know, a dozen or so or residential towers around the world. I mean, that's not nothing, but there are blocks in Manhattan that have more real estate than, than Trump has. And, you know, he, he doesn't count as a major figure in either global hotels or, or global real estate, although that's partially why I worry about him, because that means that a million dollars here, a million dollars there means a lot to his business. And the way his business works, and part of this is true for every business like his. So if you think of the Four Seasons or the Hyatt or whatever, when there are five-star hotels, particularly in developing economies or economies with, you know, some degree of corruption, basically the business model is you partner with someone local who has really great connections to the leadership so that they can get the building done, get through all the permitting and stuff, but also crucially, especially for the kind of five-star hotel market that Trump tries to play in so that they can make it a destination. The Four Seasons and Marriott's and Hyatt's of the world have enormous due diligence practices to kind of monitor this and stay on the right side of the law. That's not something Trump has. Also... So what does this all mean? The thing he is selling is his name, and that's problematic for several reasons. One reason it's problematic, you know, you can't... (laughs) I mean, he can't disassociate himself from his name. So when he leaves the presidency, hopefully in four years, maybe in eight years, the value of the Trump name will be his value. That will be the thing he owns. So so no matter who runs it for the next four to eight years, he is still accruing value to his name. So that's something he can't disassociate unless he truly sells the company. It takes on a new name, but then it has no value at all because the only asset it has is the Trump name. Secondly, you know, these are private transactions that occur between the Trump organization and some developer in in a developing country. And these are very easy to manipulate. So, you know, let's say he starts doing a business deal with somebody in, you know, Haiti or some other country that's known for being corrupt. How would we know what they're paying the Trump organization? How would we know if we find out that they're paying $10 million a year, is that the right price? Or was the right price really $1 million and they upped it to $10 million? Because what, they are, what the Trump organization is selling is that ephemeral idea of the value of the name. And they are selling it to precisely the people who are going to want to communicate to 
the higher-ups in their country that they have a direct pipeline to the president. His partner in Indonesia, this guy Harry Tano, seems to be really reaping the benefits of being the conduit to Trump. The guy in Turkey, who is a bit on the outs, the, the family in Azerbaijan, who is a bit on the outs, are able to parcel their relationship with Trump for power within their country. That's upsetting in and of itself, but then it also is a huge signal all over the world hey, if I want to get ahead in my country, if I want to get construction contracts from the president, if I want to get more power, get my brother to be the minister of you know, energy or whatever, all I need to do is one of those Trump hotels. Does this just mean that he gets really rich or does this fundamentally change the way corruption and favor-seeking work around the world? For, you know, for the reasons Adam's just been explaining, this problem is essentially unfixable. I mean, the, the, the solution to it was not to nominate Donald Trump, not to elect Donald Trump. We now have to seek some solution that is in the realm of possibility. The only real solution at this point, as Adam explains, would basically be for him to close his business and for nobody to be selling the Trump brand while he's president. That's, that's, that's not going to happen. That's not they only don't seem not, to have any intention. If I can interrupt for half a second, <laughs> Please it's, do. I'm going to just – it is not unfixable – it is just that he has declined to fix it. The businesses could be sold. It would take a while. They could be sold along with the Trump name. Let others profit off of the Trump name. He is just choosing not to opt for that difficult and possibly costly to him solution to fix it. Now I'm going to let you proceed, Jacob. But well, Bruce, I, I mean, that's. The, but I think you've hit on the nub of it. I don't see how he can sell his name and let somebody else do what they want with it. I mean, his name, yeah, it would that brand value attached to the hotels, but indirectly attached to him or, or fairly directly attached to him has some value. If you auction that off right now, globally, somebody would buy it. And if he put no restrictions on it, they could use Trump's name in all sorts of ways that would be very disturbing, ways that he might not like, ways that would suggest conflicts of interest. But the but the the, the issue would be out there. He might not be profiting personally from it. But it's just it's it, well, that's it seemed, a big difference, right? I mean, I think we have to ask him to do something that's in the realm of fair possibility. I think that would involve selling off assets, disclosure. But when it comes to the name, the Trump branding business, I just don't think but it's we, realistic we can, to ask him to shut it down. Really? Isn't it reasonable to ask them to take a four-year pause on marketing this brand? I mean, why, they're incredibly rich people. He's the president. If he really cared more about the country, wouldn't that be an entire... Also, he gets a huge tax break if he sells these assets because of a law that encourages government officials to avoid exactly these kinds of conflicts of interest. I think that's true of everything except this the name, the branding business. I mean, when, you're, when you have brand value attached to your personal name. I mean, yes, I would like him to close down his business for the length of his presidency. I think that would be the best solution. I, I don't I, I think that's not only unrealistic, but a little bit unfair. I, I'm saying, what can we ask him to do that is that is in the realm of plausibility? Ruth? <laughs> well, it was unfair to ask Hank Paulson to sell hundreds of millions of dollars of Goldman Sachs shares at a loss, did. but he did it because it was more important, he thought, for him to be Treasury Secretary, and that was what the law required. I am not at all – I mean, I think that we should talk about what's in the realm of the feasible and doable just for a different reason because he is not going to sell the businesses and um, evaporate the Trump brand. So we should sort of speak going forward about 
what he then should do and what the second best solution is. But I'm just not backing down on that as the first best solution. Yeah, good I'm point. actually going to disagree with, with, with both of you and say this is intolerable. It might continue and we might have to tolerate it, but it is, it is hard to convey how intolerable this is. So tell us why. These are just like the things off the top of my head that are intolerable. <laughs> his, part- his partners in Indonesia... Turkey and Azerbaijan are all, they share some things in common. They're wealthy people who don't, extremely wealthy people who don't seem to particularly care about Islamic extremism, but are making uneasy pieces with Islamic extremists in, in both their, their relative countries and, and, and also internationally. His dealings in South America are, are deeply problematic. This aborted Dominican Republic deal, his, his, you know, basically Ponzi scheme deal, possibly in Uruguay, his relationship with Georgia. His business is intimately tied up with crucial global national security concerns. And there is zero question that at some point in the next four years, there will be some something, and maybe it's, I don't know what happens in the presidential daily briefing. It might happen every day. It certainly, I'm sure, happens every month. Well, he's not reading it, so there's that. Yeah, he's not reading it, which is lucky. But that the idea that any time we talk about Islamic extremists in Indonesia, Turkey, Azerbaijan, we we have an inherent conflict of interest that the way the president acts could cost him millions of dollars, even if he sells the business. Even if he gets rid of it, even if someone else owns the Trump name, you know, he he probably thinks he's immortal. Certainly his kids have a long life to live. And their asset, they have one asset, the value of the Trump name. That's still what they're going to have in 2020 and 2024. On top of it, the U.S. has been the leading force in global anti-corruption initiatives. We have transformed since 9-11 the flow of money around the world. It is the most effective tool against terrorism and organized crime and sexual slavery and a million other really deep problematic issues. And as I talk to experts on this, the thing we have is moral clarity. The Mm -hmm. thing we have is we are less corrupt than you. And when you talk to those same people now in developing countries, you know, they have a big smile on their face. So I would say don't run for president if you have a business like this and you're not willing to give it up. It is intolerable. And any discussion about, well, what would be reasonable to ask – I love you, Jacob, but that to me is not our job. Our well, job is hang to on point a second here, well, Adam, well, though, because I think, I mean, look, I agree with you 100% that it's 100% intolerable. And I think these will be the articles of impeachment if we ever get a Congress that wants to hold him accountable. Because yeah, that you, Congress. You know, but in the absence of that, you know, Ruth has to write Washington Post editorials asking him to do something that will make the situation better, or at least I think she should. Or to stop making it worse. Right. But, and, and I think she can, until she's blue in the face, say, close down your business. But I don't think that's going to happen. And I guess what I'm asking is, what can we demand that he do, short of shutting down the Trump business, that, would, that could plausibly happen and that would reduce the apparent and real conflicts of interest I that he's got? I would think literally nothing. I would I I honestly think there is no way if you're talking about you have this brand the Trump brand and it's worth whatever it's worth it is now worth a lot more and 
he will be making choices as president on a daily basis that will influence the value of that brand. I think it's safe to say this is not the world's most introspective man. This is not a man who questions his urges and emotional feelings. So, it, I, I, you know, he doesn't even need to sit there and say, you know what, I'm going to let Al-Qaeda get away with this because, uh, you know, or let the Islamic State get away with this because I got that business deal in Turkey. It's just he'll say, yeah, you know, I mean, look at President Obama. He's made a bunch of decisions in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan that reasonable people disagree with. These are tough, tough calls. And what if we knew that he was either directly or in four years would directly benefit to the tunes of tens of millions, maybe billions of dollars by those decisions. We cannot trust those decisions. It's un, it doesn't need to be explicit corruption. It doesn't need to be. We are talking about the most difficult decisions a president faces in the most difficult, morally unclear parts of the world. And we have no ability to be confident. And there is no structure short of there is no longer a business called Trump that works. And they have no assets. I mean, they have some assets. So they have no, that is not their business. I, th- I think that there's a distinction between um, intolerable and even more intolerable. <laughs> and so, All right, let's uh, find that one. So I think, you know, I think that we can operate in the realm of, okay, let's explore how we can make it less, uh, still intolerable, but whatever. Less, more intolerable. Merely so, despicable. and one of them, one of the, yeah, exactly. One of them is that Trump, instead of being, and the Trump um, transition, instead of being ready for this, was um, because it was a big, huge, honking problem of corruption and conflict staring us in the face. Trump announced it to Steve Bannon when he talked about his towers in not one, but two towers in Turkey and said, I have a conflict of interest in talking about this. Yeah, duh, which continues. So A, they were just appallingly unprepared. B, he is now, um, we'll see what he has to say that won't solve the problem in two weeks, but just a not oblivious, but absolutely heedless to the things that he's doing to make the problem worse. And those are twofold. One is that he's simultaneously telling us that he's going to um, solve, and I'm doing air quotes, the problem by giving the business to his children, or at least, you know, assigning the responsibility for running it to his children, even as he is inviting his children into the transition and possibly in the form of Jared Kushner's son-in-law into the administration. So, and he is inviting them in the transition, sitting in on these meetings. Um, so that's huge problem number one, that his Incoming White House counsel needs to tell him to stop right away, in all caps. The second part of that is the flip side of this. He needs to stop when he's having conversations with foreign leaders to raise things of business interest. Don't talk to Nigel Farage about your honking windmills <laughs> that are interfering with the view on the, the golf view, course, for goodness sakes. Don't have a meeting with um, Indian gov- uh, business people who, as the president-elect, who have business interests with you. Just stop making it worse, okay? It's like the Hippocratic oath of uh, Do no big hotel harm. owners. Yeah. You know what I worry but, about, though? I worry 
that all of this has been very sloppy, this beginning. You know, he's taking these pictures, thumbs up with the Indian businessman. Ivanka's sitting there in her super high heel stilettos with the prime minister of Japan. They'll just stop doing it so obviously and publicly. And it'll be going on. It'll be buried one more layer and we won't even know about it. Like, at least no, I think can, if you... Well, I'm sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. you, Emily. No, I'm just fine. so worked up here. Please, I apologize. Please. We're all um, about interrupting. But I think if show. you... If you do put some structures in place, some written rules of these guys are not going to do this and my children aren't going to do this and I'm not going to do that. I'm sure Adam is about to explode here because it won't be adequate to solve the problem. But if you brought in an outsider to run things and kept everybody out of it, you can mitigate harm if even if you can't eliminate it. It's like having a chronic disease. Well, you know what he's going to do. He's going to run the business through Ivanka. It, it's right. called a blonde trust. <laughs> but Ruth, I think you're awesome, Ruth, and I don't mean to single you out. But if you wrote a that's column, okay, I can were, take it. <laughs> all right, here are the six things you could do to make this less tolerable. less intolerable. I mean, the Wall Street Journal already wrote that op-ed, by the way. Right. Um, and then he says, "I did the Marcus plan." Now, obviously, he's going to do a watered-down version. It's not going to be quite – it'll be like his, you know, showing his health history to Dr. Oz. Donald (laughs) Trump announces that equals zero. Right. Uh, Understood. Understood. (laughs) But once we set a standard that is less than the clear standard, which is he should have no conflict of interest, then we are giving him license to – for these shenanigans. I mean, I know there's like Andrew Russ Sorkin saying, oh, Ken Feinberg, everyone trusts that guy. He could run the business. Still, if he runs it well, the Trump name is worth something. And Trump will know because these are big, you know, there'll be big articles about it. Oh boy, Ken Feinberg just opened a big business in Hong Kong or Macau or wherever. And he will know that. And he will know that the Trump organization has announced a big pivot towards Asia, towards the Middle East. That's where they see growth. And so he knows that. So it's, I, my feeling is it's just intolerable. It's like, you know, let's say he joined ISIS and we're like, yeah, well, it turns out the president's allowed to join ISIS. Yeah, yeah, but he no law gets that like, either. Yeah. Adam's, Adam's right. I, I capitulate. Adam's right. Here's one. I'm going to give you one plank of the Marcus plan. Okay. And, you know, TM, Ruth Marcus, right? Uh, I'm going to have it all over the, the plan when he enacts it. Okay, so he can, it's too encumbering um, and difficult for him to get rid of the businesses. But because he cares more about the country than his businesses, they can put a pause on using the Trump name and going forward with their plans. I think it's for hundreds of additional hotels in the next several years. It's a big expansion of their hotel business. Plank one of the Marcus plan is let's put a pause on that. They don't need they don't need to sort of hurt themselves by divesting properties that are liquid and taking huge losses, but they also can take steps to not appear to further profit off the presidency. But they have this other brand, Scion. It's not the Trump name, but everyone knows it's Trump. It's going to be in the interest of of potential partners to, you know, make a big loud noise. Hey, we're doing a Scion. Yeah, we love Scion. They can operate. Plank plank 1A of the Marcus plan is actually, I mean, all hotels. I don't mean just hotels that have the big T on them. I mean, they can run their business, but they don't. There's nothing in the like laws of physics that requires them to expand it for the next four years or, God forbid, eight years. What Adam has convinced me is that 
there is no way to solve this. And also that we shouldn't wait to see the clear conflict of interest where we say, ah, now Trump is pro-ISIS because he wants to open a hotel and, you know, whatever. Damascus. Thank you, Damascus. <laughs> I mean, we, that we, in other words, I started with this example from Turkey because it seemed kind of shockingly clear cut. But we don't need to amass a lot of those examples to know that this could be warping and distorting for policy in ways we can't see. And so... Yes, like we should keep it. We should look for those examples to make the case even starker. But really, this is about Congress doing its job. It's about either impeachment under the emoluments clause, if that's directly what's at issue, or just a recognition that this corruption and conflict of interest is, as you say, intolerable. I think that our target is Paul Ryan. Uh That is and and oh, good. Good luck. Good luck. But I think we as journalists, we have to try. I mean, we are in an intolerable situation, and the only person who can make it go away is Paul Ryan. And and he needs, we need to f- provide him with as much details and as much information. You know, a, so, a, a good compa- comparison example for me is Bloomberg's dealing with China, where Bloomberg reporters did an amazing investigative report on China, and it was stifled because... I think this has been well documented, but my understanding is because China was Bloomberg's main target for growth, and they can't have the Chinese telling them you can't sell Bloomberg terminals here. That was outrageous, but it was a private company, and it it was with a lot of the same elements. You know, Mike Bloomberg was called Bloomberg, right? Was making yeah, was making a decision. I I have heard, I can't say this with 100% certainty, that very quickly other projects with other government leaders in the Bloomberg organization were stifled. A friend of mine worked on a major Bloomberg report on another country where they were about to bring down a leader, and it was stifled. And then word got out within Bloomberg organization, hey, the big boss doesn't want us messing with these corrupt leaders where there's growth. What happens at the Department of Justice? What happens at at U.S. embassies around the world when you know, let's just say for the sake of argument that Donald Trump is the most honorable man in the world, I'm laughing, and owns all these businesses, and you are the ambassador at in one of those countries, and you learn that Donald Trump's partner is doing some pretty shady stuff. What do you do about that? Mm-hmm. You call the, you know, um, it is fully, outrageously, unacceptably intolerable, no matter what they do, other than they're not in this business anymore. And and we need, I need to spend the next four years making that point over and over and over again with as many detailed examples as possible. Okay, I think that is an excellent place to end this. Sorry, Ruth. We're going to let Adam go so we can talk about Tom Price. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, thanks, guys. This episode of The GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. 
So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Our second topic, I want to focus on Tom Price, the cabinet nominee for the Department of Health and Human Services. Trump has also made other choices this week to Treasury, to Commerce, but I'm really interested in what is going to happen with healthcare in this country. So I want to focus on him. So we're talking about a Republican, very conservative congressman from Georgia who was an orthopedic surgeon and has one of the most detailed proposals for repealing and replacing Obamacare. It's also one of the least generous for sick people and poor people. So, for example, if you have a pre-existing condition, you only get to maintain your health insurance at its current price if you have what's called continuous coverage. So if you drop off for a month or two for some reason in or out of your control, then health insurance companies can charge you much more money afterward. And in general, this is a plan like Paul Ryan's that really makes health insurance much cheaper for people who are younger and healthier and richer and would looks like it will really raise the prices tremendously for sicker, poorer, older people. And now I'm borrowing a lot from Sarah Cliff at Vox in that analysis. Um, seems right. So in, you know, uh, Trump has kind of flicked at the idea that, oh, maybe he wants to keep some part of Obamacare. But Ruth, when you look at the selection of Tom Price, what does that suggest to you about what is going to happen next for health insurance in this country? Nothing good if you are in any way a fan of Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, as it's more accurately called. Look, after the election, um, people were kind of grasping at little filaments of hopefulness. So one of the threads that they pulled at was something, and I think pulled at incorrectly, and the lesson of the price selection is that this was just a mirage, was that the president-elect told 60 Minutes that he wanted to, as he says, keep pre-existing conditions by what which he means um, protecting people with pre-existing conditions from either being denied coverage or being charged coverage that's unaffordable, an element of the Affordable Care Act that everybody agrees on. He wanted also to allow young people to be covered on their parents' insurance. And so everybody was like, oh, wow, big turnaround. It actually thought this was a major reporting failure because if you went back and looked at what Trump had said during Republican debates, it was exactly that. Of course, everybody likes the dessert of the Affordable Care Act and right. nobody likes no spinach. the spinach part of it, which is the requirement to purchase insurance. So the selection of price just illustrates um, a couple things. First of all, it illustrates that the hope that we would keep the structures in place and not um, demolish it is just a, a mirage. Second, though, it sets up some interesting collisions between what Trump has said and what Republicans on the Hill, including Price, have argued for. For example, Trump has talked, not in the context of the Affordable Care Act, but in the broader context of health care, about not touching Medicare, leaving that alone. It's a great program. 
Republicans on the Hill, including Price, want to turn Medicare into what's called a premium support program, what Democrats denounce as a voucher program that would allow you to only um, buy as much Medicare as you can afford. And then, you know, good luck, you're on your own. So who's going to win in that context? And then the third thing is Trump on this and on a whole bunch of other things, it's going to play itself out on taxes as well, has caught up with the difficulty of taking his airy and wonderful sounding gauzy promises and translating them into reality. And there's no place in which that is harder and clearer than in taking the good parts of the Affordable Care Act and leaving out the stuff that you don't like. So you've got 20 million people who have coverage, who didn't have coverage previously, Republicans on the Hill are already starting to talk about, well, we'll repeal it, but it won't be repealed immediately. It's going to phase in. And of course, you know, Democrats will cooperate with us in crafting a new program. Good luck on that. There's going to be a very big divide between the we are going to immediately repeal this rhetoric of the campaign and the reality of what he's going to be able to do as govern as a, a governing entity. Just to add one more thing, Price is in favor of ending the expansion of Medicaid under Obamacare, which itself, I think, is responsible for about 15 million people getting health insurance. And this is somewhere something that he differs from other Republicans on. And maybe there'll be some room for compromise here. And you could imagine that. But it. Jacob including Lee. including the vice president who expanded Medicaid in his state. In Indiana, exactly. So maybe they'll move on that. But Jacob, when you look at this, I mean, we're going to have the same kind of level of attention and we're going to go just have another big health insurance debate and come up with a solution, which is just really doesn't help people who need support and subsidies. Well, back to our theme of the, of the first part of the show, I don't see a solution here. I mean, you know, just to take a, a hazard of metaphor, Affordable Care Act was a shiny new car. And it's great to have a new car. 20 million people got a ride who didn't have a ride before. They had health insurance. But after a couple of years, it hadn't had a tune-up. It hadn't had an oil change. And parts of it weren't working so well. In particular, not enough healthy and young people were being pushed into the system. So premiums were going up too high for people who were were sick and and didn't think they could live without insurance. Instead of getting the tune-up it needs, you have Republicans coming in who are saying in different ways, we should junk the car and get a new car. No, we should keep the the leather seats and the sunroof, but we, it needs a new engine. No brakes. And yeah, no brake. And you know, you you start to take that car apart, and you don't have a car that goes anywhere. So you can't keep, as Ruth was saying, you can't keep the parts that are appealing. You know, stay on your parents' insurance till you're 26. You can say they can't discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, but if they can use underwriting to charge whatever they want, it doesn't matter because it's no it doesn't do most people any good to say you we will definitely offer you a plan for $70,000 a year. So, you know, you have the Republicans now in a way their bluff has been called, right? They control Congress. They can sign whatever legislation they pass and sign whatever le- legislation they want. I think the most likely scenario is they do some hybrid thing where they pretend to keep the parts that are popular, start to move towards privatization of Medicare, which is the ultimate goal of a lot of conservatives. And, you know, Trump 
is believes the last person he talked to. I mean, he's extremely impressionable about this. He came out of his meeting with Obama, say, you know, saying positive things about uh, the Affordable Care Act in total contradiction to what he'd said during the campaign. I don't know how we're going to get any consistency from him for five minutes. We have a, a, a HHS secretary of confirmed who clearly does have a stronger point of view about what he'd like to do. Close, but not exactly the same as the Speaker of the House. I don't know, but it's their choice to make. And to some extent, you have to say, all right, you made your bed, lie in it now. Go ahead and come up with something that you think is going to work better. Is privatizing Medicare the third rail? I mean, I know that it's important to conservative philosophy to have this move toward private everything. But when you talk to people about the idea of losing Medicare. Medicare is a really popular, successful government program. It's been associated with um, a real safety net for older people. With healthcare, it also has um, helped bring down the cost curve for how the money we spend on taking care of sick people in this country. I That one just seems to me like such a point of political vulnerability. It's politically insane, but the politically insane has become plausible in ways it hasn't before. I mean, when Medicare passed in 1965, Republicans who had opposed it tooth and nail, including, you know, people like Bob Dole and Ronald Reagan – pretty much immediately threw in the towel and said, all right, we recognize this is this is part of life now. We're going to live with it. And they stopped trying to roll it back. And only the sort of far libertarian right sort of held, kept holding up this flag of, you know, this is socialized medicine. And Republicans haven't really wanted to take it on for the obvious political reason for 50 years. But there are those who do. And Paul Ryan has a you know foot in that camp because of his libertarian leanings. I think if you really left it up to him, without any political considerations, he would undo it tomorrow. So, Ruth, what is do you think that's his, their point of vulnerability? I think it's a point of vulnerability. And you can see that in the gleefulness with which people like Chuck Schumer seized on um, prices support for premium support uh, in denouncing the selection. And, you know, this is there's nothing better for um, either political party than riling up seniors and it's going to be really interesting to see how Donald Trump deals with um, what might be the dawning realization that the party that he leads has a different view about entitlements and the need to curb entitlement spending than the one he expressed during the campaign. One of the things that that leads me to worry about, actually, is Medicaid, right, which mm-hmm. does not have a hugely powerful constituency yes. in which the solution, the quote, unquote, so I'm going to have to, I think we should just like have some kind of continuing air quote way to convey this to um, <laughs> listeners. The, the I don't know what it is. Option. Merely despicable. The um, Republican solution on Medicaid has long been turning it into a block grant program. And so that is wrapped in the um, rhetoric of state flexibility and why shouldn't states who are closer to the issue figure out how to use this money to better care for their own individual populations of poor people. We all know what happens with block grants. They do not grow with need. They do not respond to turndowns in the economy, and they end up with less service for the people who need it most. And so, especially if it turns out that privatizing Medicare is not going to be a politically appealing option, and there's going to be an urge to do something, that's going to happen on the backs of poor people. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Judy. <laughs> 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So to move on to our third topic, we had this week of Twitter spasms from Trump. I feel like it's even a waste of my breath to go through it. But... So, you know, he first talked about this completely made up notion that millions of people voted illegally and he would have won the popular vote count if they hadn't done so. Then he brought up the idea that people who burn the flag should go to jail or have their citizenship stripped from them, a thing that we don't do in this country that the Supreme Court. So there's this sort of patient fact checking that we can do or we can like really get into a lather about these really beyond the pale ideas that he's throwing out there. Or we can marvel at the idea that this is a person who has a direct line to gazillion Twitter followers who's not holding press conferences and who seems to plan a completely different communication strategy. And I'm not sure he'll be held accountable by the broader press or who what I can't figure out exactly what the cost to him is in doing this. Maybe this is a temporary phenomenon. He's not the president yet. He still can act like a TV star in the way he's presenting himself. But it is a real shift in the sort of organized, dignified, um, even staid set of communications that we're accustomed to from presidents. So, Jacob, what do you think the challenges are for the press and for the public in figuring out how to deal with this Twitter stew? I mean, the press is massively struggling now with how to cover Trump and, and the how to deal with his, his crazy tweets is just one one element of it. And it's, it's a fascinating moment because it's totally unprecedented. We've never dealt with someone who lies in this way. And the whole question of, is he lying intentionally? Is it propaganda? Is, is it, it tamper? distraction what, technique? You, you know, yeah. and, do, and, and if you can't resolve that question, what are, the, what are the implications? I mean, the thing I keep coming back to in my own mind, I think we're just going to have to sort this out. And, it's a, and there's a different answer for Slate versus the New York Times and the Washington Post. And, you know, it's this space that, for example, Slate likes to live in, which is be between straight news on the one hand and opinion and partisanship on the other, that island's getting really small because you're, there's a sense that you're being, if you're, you're being pushed into opposition if you're not practicing some conventional kind of access stenographic journalism. But I keep coming back to this thing that my, I have this Italian friend, Beppe Severnini, who's a columnist. I love saying his name, Beppe Severnini. He's a columnist at El Corriere della Sera, which is the leading political paper based in Milan. And he said with Berlusconi back, I think I had him on Trumpcast at the very beginning back in March, he said, you have to take him seriously, but not take him seriously. And what does that mean? What that means is you have to take his pronouncements and his policies seriously, the extent that you, he's a person with now with actual power who could do these things and you have to you can't dismiss them as ridiculous you have to say all right he wants you know he wants to take citizenship away from people who burn the flag you know here are the here are the constitutional impediments to that here is why it's outrageous and, and unprecedented here is why he's attacking what you know cons- justice scalia and other conservative supreme court justices have said about why flag burning is constitutionally protected i mean you take it you don't treat it as a joke because he could in some ways move to do it. At the same time, you hold on to the essential preposterousness of this man and how outside the range of 
not just conventional opinion, but conventional relationship to reality he is when he's tweeting that there were millions of illegal votes. So, you know, I think it's a fine, it's a paradox and it's a fine line. But I'm not comfortable with the idea, you know, that Jack Schaefer sort of floated in a very good piece this week on Politico that you don't sort of rise to the bait about his tweets because I don't think it's okay to ignore them. At the same time, I don't think you take them 100 percent seriously in the sense that you treat them like you would if Paul Ryan was tweeting these things or if another ordinary politician was making statements. Ruth, do you think the press, in particular the Washington press corps, is going to rise to this challenge and figure out how to thread this needle? Well, I can only speak to what I think <laughs> that, that, that I and my compatriots should do. I think we have to, as much as I love and admire Jack Schaefer. He was totally wrong on a number of different counts. I think we need to, it's not rising to the bait. It's confronting the challenge. You cannot have a president-elect or a president of the United States who is saying falsehoods and say that the solution to that, as you know, as Jacob was making the same argument that I am, um, is to ignore them. They have to be called out. We had like a little bit of a kind of uh, many years ago dress rehearsal for this during the Reagan administration and during the Reagan campaign, where he had a habit of saying things that weren't true. And at the time, there got to be a little bit of Reagan fatigue, and you wouldn't kind of correct the ninth time that he said it or the tenth thing that he said that turned out not to be uh, supported by the facts. I think we now have, thanks to the internet, the bandwidth and the capability to consistently and constantly and as many times as it's required, call it out when the man who is the president of the United States or the president of the United States-to-be says things that are untrue, anti-constitutional, ahistorical, whatever it is. I think at the same time, it's a bad idea for us, and this is something else that Jack suggested, to try to deduce and announce his what his intentions are in throwing these things out there. So there was there's a lot of debate about whether these tweets are intended to distract us and so we shouldn't allow us ourselves to be distracted by the truly nefarious things that he's doing by covering them. I don't think we know what his intent is. I don't think his intent is fathomable. I actually am personally on the side of thinking that it's less a canny misdirection than it is that he simply can't contain himself when he has a thought and particularly when he's provoked by somebody criticizing him that he just can't control himself. I don't think it's our job unless it's based on reporting to deduce his intention. It's just our job to say This is not true. So I am going to defend Jack. I don't actually think Jack was calling for ignoring the batshit Twitter spasms. I think he's talking about degree here. And by taking the bait, I think he means letting it dominate, in particular, television coverage in a way that is often pretty credulous, right? So the difference between Trump falsely claims and Trump claims is a really big difference. And some media outlets are going in the first direction. Some are going in the second direction. There's this middle ground the New York Times occupied about the millions of votes, which which, which is, say, with no basis or with no evidence. Um, That's where they're standing on this for now. But I think what Jack is also trying to get the push the press toward seems like the right substantive answer to me, which is aggressive reporting and coverage that is not about refreshing your Twitter feed and being spoon fed these little 
you know, droplets of news. So Newt Gingrich gave uh, an interview over the weekend where he talked about how the press likes to chase the rabbit. And so Trump's giving them a good rabbit to chase. And he's uh, very good at, you know, the suspense of like, will Mitt Romney be secretary of state? We're treated to a whole week of like weird photos from the Mitt Romney Trump dinner date. And these very reality TV based ways of getting attention. Meanwhile, you know, what I would like the press corps to be doing is figuring out who is going to be inside this administration that is going to tell us what's really going on. How can we start thinking about what the impact of these policy proposals and these cabinet appointees is? And that I worry that that's not going to get enough airtime. Well, there's a term for what Trump is doing. It's called trolling. I mean, he's trying to, you know, by being outrageous, provoke a reaction. And I think it is um, very calculated and cynical in the sense no individual, any individual tweet is probably a rant provoked by something he, you know, saw on Infowars or, you know, that Steve Bannon told him. But in some, he's recognized that provoking the press and provoking liberals in the way he does with this outrageousness has worked to his benefit because his supporters accept his reality as a valid reality and it riles them up. So when you realize that by reacting in a certain predictable way, you are probably playing into his hands, what do you then do? And I think that's the issue Jack is highlighting. And I don't think there's a good solution to it for the reasons, you know, Riven, you have both said it's not you can't ignore it. But if you if you react to it the way you're inclined, certainly the way I'm inclined to react to it, it's you're not into his hands. You're not. Yeah, you're not persuading anybody. You know, and I think that, you know, the thing that ha- that is going to start to work or could start to work against Trump is, you know, not just focus on conflict of interest, not just focus on the minutia of policy, but fo- or the appointments, but focus on the way he has launched a covert war against the people who voted for him. When the people who vote voted for him start to feel betrayed because the billionaires he's put in office are launching a class war against them, totally at odds with what they thought they bought, then it starts to hurt. And to the extent that anything he does distracts from that reality, it helps him and hurts it hurts the vulnerable press. I mean, where I'm lumping the press together with people who who aren't the press. But the question is how to you know how do rational people react to Donald Trump? And I think we have to start to make that case and make it in in compelling ways. Trump's not actually at war with us. He's created an apparent war with us to distract his followers from the class war he's launched against them. And in some ways, that part will get easier over the course of the presidency because we'll be measuring real impact and the real effect on people's lives. It won't be this hypothetical question of like, will people lose their health insurance? It will be finding the stories of people who lost their health insurance or, you know, in the civil rights battles to come, which I've been thinking about a lot, you know, what kinds of changes in positions that the administration takes in court? How do those affect people's voting rights? How do they affect, you know, housing and employment cases. If there's a silver lining here to me, it's the hope that the press corps in particular, and maybe I'm being unfair, Ruth, you can tell me if I'm being unfair, but I sometimes feel like the Washington press corps is pretty content, parts of it, to be fed, to have, you know, administration officials come on TV, talk with whatever degree of truth they care to give about their proposals and a lot of taking them at their word and reporting, you know, what Trump says, not what he and his administration is actually doing. And so perhaps he is going to take things 
things to such an extreme, for example, by not holding press conferences, that reporters will actually get out and do more reporting on what he, what this administration is doing, not not what it's saying. I think the risk is slightly different, and it's a risk that we experienced during the campaign. Trump says so many outrageous things that we end up practicing what I've called bright, shiny object journalism, and we go chasing after that and forget to ask him this is back in the campaign, really basic questions like, so what do you think about NATO? He came to the Washington Post and we decided to ask him some of those basic questions and everybody was like, oh, wow, he doesn't know anything or he's not thought this through at all because nobody, even though he had made himself endlessly available, everybody was chasing after the bright, shiny object. I think we can't ignore the bright, shiny object when it's something as outrageous as claiming that there was massive voter fraud that resulted in his election. But we have to sort of do two things at once. We have to decry the misstatement and ask the really basic questions. I have a little bit more faith, actually more now that we have brought a lot of wonks into the conversation and given them various outlets on the internet to explain things to us in detail that we won't be simply spoon-fed policy by the Trump administration and unquestionably accept it. I just think we need to make sure we have the bandwidth to do both. All right. That's a nice optimistic note to end on. <laughs> For a change. <laughs> a rare and treasured quality in a GabFest segment. Jacob, as you are heading into your weekend, drink in hand, I hope, to comfort yourself and maybe take advantage. I can't remember if the weather is going to continue to be warm in New York, but right now it's lovely. Um, what will you be chattering about? You know, um, last weekend over Thanksgiving weekend, I really need to get away from Trump. And I just I, I, I kind of put down my phone and, and, and didn't read much in the newspaper. I just read some books. And the best thing I read was this memoir called Barbarian Days by the New Yorker writer William Finnegan. It's about surfing. surfing. It's so good. I have no interest in surfing. I tried surfing once and I broke my nose. I actually <laughs> broke my nose. Um, surfing? Like on the board? Yeah, I got kind of slammed into the it, it was it was too shallow. That, that's not a good story. His stories of surfing are unbelievable. You can't believe he's still <laughs> alive because he almost died like 20 times. But it is such an amazing piece of writing, and it, uh, it also evokes this time, which is I'm old enough to remember in the in the 70s and 80s when, as a young person, you would travel the world and be basically out of touch with your family, and you would be 100% wherever you were. But it's also, you know, it's really a book about addiction because this the thing about surfing, as he describes it, is it's so consuming the rush that you, yeah that you you basically you know chasing these these waves these big waves you kind of lose interest in almost anything else through his 20s he describes being in this sort of frenzy you know where he loses touch with other things that matter and and with reality and it's just it's a fantastic book and he's such a great writer yeah. bill finnegan he's one of my favorite writers he wrote a book probably like 20 years ago called cold new world i think which has a whole section about new haven in it it's just a fantastic book about poverty and teenagers and growing up ruth what about you what are you going to be drinking to this weekend or cooking to uh, or running whatever you're going to be doing <laughs> um well i i am going to be chattering in um a sort of really obnoxious name droppy way and trying to figure out how to let my friends know about this cool thing that I'm doing tonight. I'm going to a screening of the new movie Jackie about the Kennedy assassination and the days following the Kennedy assassination. 
Um, and the cool part is that this is the only thing I think I've ever done that's a- actually impressed both of my children simultaneously. All right, I'm let's doing, hear it. Um, I know. I'm doing an interview with um, Natalie Portman and the director, Pablo Lorraine, uh, in a Q&A uh, after the screening at the museum. So I'm going to be looking to kind of just gently mention my sit down with Nat, as I'm told her <laughs> friends call her. It's such an interesting thing how persistent our obsession with interest in Jackie is. Unlike you guys, I'm old enough to remember the day of the Kennedy assassination. And the interesting, the director, Pablo Lorraine, is a Chilean, and he comes to this not having had the sort of historical experience with the story. He was like, oh, that's interesting footage. Um, what a, you know, what a beautiful pink suit. Um, and Natalie Portman is such a smart and thoughtful actress. And I'm really looking forward to when we chat, um, talking to her about the role of the first lady and what, um, Jackie might be thinking about the current environment, how her thinking about the, you know, really thoughtful way in which she decided she needed to shape this moment in the public consciousness, what that tells us about the, Trump administration and where it might be. So I'm sure we're going to have a great chat and we're going to be best pals at the end of it. (laughs) I have been reading a terrific book, which I'd read parts of before, but am finding incredibly salient right now. It's Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America by Ari Berman, who's a writer at The Nation um, and has been writing on TV all over the place right now, which is great because he has really done the reporting and storytelling to convey what is at stake in the past and going forward when it comes to voting rights, how hard a struggle was fought to make sure that African-Americans and now other people of color have access to the ballot. And reading this book really is setting me up for thinking about going forward what the real dangers of voter suppression are in this administration. So if you want to understand that history and struggle in a book that is not just informative, but also like really readable and pretty entertaining, I definitely recommend this book. Give Us the Ballot by Ari Berman. Just more escapism, Emily. I know. You you can't face reality. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having the same problem Dana Stevens was talking about on the Culture Fest this week, which is I really want to find a work of fiction to escape into, and I can't quite concentrate. I think I haven't found the right one. Listeners, if you have an idea of a really good work of fiction you think I'd like, send me an email or tweet it or Facebook it at us. The Slate Political Gab Fest intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply, and the Slate Political Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. There will be lots of links there as always. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Um, and our Twitter feed is at slategabfest. Our email is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the Gabfest in iTunes. And while you're there, if you could leave us a comment, that would be really terrific. That benefits us for ways that I don't really understand but seem important. It, I think, ups our ratings. You can search for the Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. For Ruth Marcus and Jacob Weisberg and Adam Davidson, I'm Emily Bazelon, and I'll be back with David and John next week. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.